So what we have in Genesis chapter 43, essentially it's a family argument. You know, and I, and I think, uh, you know, as I was looking at this, I was just thinking, you know, it's really important to point that out and to notice the humanness of these men that are in this story. Sometimes I think that we, we can think if we argue with our friends or family, if we're at odds with other people, you know what, it excludes me from being used by God. You know, at times, you know, I'm sure that is true, but, um, you know, I don't think that's always the case. I mean, God uses the frail and he uses the feeble and he uses the flawed so that he can just get tremendous glory, right? What did Paul say in, in uh, Corinthians? Look amongst yourself, not many noble, not many wise, you know? Uh, God uses the weakness of the world to confound the strong. He uses the foolish things of the world to confound um, the wise. And God uses these guys in this chapter. They're arguing, but he uses them to plant the entire nation of Israel through whom the Lord will send the Messiah into the world through, right? So I think that's worth uh, taking note as we start out. Also, I should have mentioned this a little bit last week, maybe. But we also want to note, I, I did say this, but Joseph, man, he's sharp. He's smart. You know, one of the reasons he held Simeon back, I mean, there's multiple reasons. We did talk about him already. We discussed him uh, uh, last week, I think it was. But for one very important reason, Joseph holds Simeon back so that in case his family doesn't return to Egypt, He's got a living roadmap on how to get back to his, his dad. You know, and I just think that that's so, so amazing. You know, Joseph, he's a smart cookie, right? Uh, but as we see, you know, um, when, when they do come back in this chapter, Joseph is going to put them through their paces to find out, to discover whether or not his brothers are the same old guys or if they've been changed, if they have a heart change. And so Genesis 43, verse 1 says, Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had bought in Egypt. Now, first thing I want to know is, like, how long has it been? How long has it been? I mean, Simeon's back in an Egyptian jail, He's scared. He's, you know, over there in the corner shaking and frightened. You know, uh, you know, he's probably thinking, you know, are they coming back for me or not? It's at least a six-week round trip journey from Egypt to Cana and back. And, uh, you know, then you consider that they left Egypt with provisions. You know, how, how long did those provisions Last, so it's been six weeks plus. You know, however long those provisions last that they brought back. Simeon, he's just in, he's just rotten away uh, there in an Egyptian jail. And it says that it came to pass when they had eaten up all the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, "Go back, buy us a little food." Joseph gave them enough grain to sustain them for a time, but not enough. To, so they wouldn't have to return to Egypt. Joseph, he's a thinker. But verse 3 says, But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So Judah, he says to Jacob, he says, You know, we told you, Dad, you're, you're not listening to us. The man said that we can't come back unless we have our brother Benjamin with us. And verse five, 4 says, If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy, uh, buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. I mean, can you just hear this arguing? It's just going on. It's just starting to pick up, right? Dad, I don't know how to communicate this to you. But this guy's serious. 
right? We're not going to get a single kernel of grain and, you know, from this guy unless we have Benjamin go down there with us. I mean, he, the man made this perfectly clear. You're not listening. In verse 6, Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still had a brother? You ever had one of those conversations? Why did you do it? You know, you're looking back with a little regret. Why did it? Why did you say that? Why did you? Uh, Tina asked me that question a lot. Why did you say that? You know, you know what my answer is? Oh. <laughs> you know. Anyway, you know, he says, why did you tell, why did you tell him you had a brother? Why didn't you lie? Didn't you learn anything from me? Uh, verse 7, but they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Listen, dad, how are we supposed to know he would have asked us to bring our brother? I mean, you know what? We're bowed down before him. We're sweating bullets, you know, because he's accusing us of being spies. We're just playing nice, as nice as we can. We're just trying to get out of there with our skin and a little bit of food for you so we don't die. And then Judah, verse 8, said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Judah says, you know what? If you don't send Benjamin back with us, we're all going to die. If you don't loosen up your grip a little, Dad, on Benjamin, you know what? We're all going to die. And these comments here are to give us an uh, indication of how severe this famine actually was. It gives us a little bit of insight. These guys are truly, honestly fearing for their life. This famine is so bad. And again, remember, we're only one, maybe two years into a seven-year famine. In verse 9, I myself will be surety for him, Judah says, for my hand, from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. <clears throat> I mean, you know what? You just look at what Judah says here in comparison to what Reuben said. Reuben said earlier, you know, if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can go ahead and kill two of your grandsons, you know? And here Reuben says, if I don't bring him back, then let the blame be on me and let it be on me forever. Judah has changed. He's a different man now. He was the one who suggested back in Genesis 37 to sell Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. He was the one that said, hey guys, you know, let's not kill him. Let's make a buck off of this guy. Let's sell him and let the Egyptians kill him. That's okay. It was Judah in Genesis 38 who acted unrighteously when he deceived Tamar about giving her his son, Sheila, right? Remember, he had promised to give Sheila as her, as her husband so he could raise up um, kids to her uh, original uh, husband that passed on. Um, but uh, Judah was afraid that Sheila would die like his other two sons. So he, he didn't do it. In fact, we learned that he actually appears, at least, he had no intention of giving Sheila to her ever, right? It was Judah that thought Tamar was the prostitute. And so he goes into her and he has this incestuous sexual encounter with her. And when it was discovered that Tamar was pregnant through harlotry, then it was Judah that said, bring her out here, man. Let's burn her alive, right? Eventually, these twins were born to Judah through Tamar, and they seem to have touched his life. I mean, as it frequently happens, you know, in all of our lives, I'm sure, you know, same with Judah. These kids, 20 years have passed, God working in his life, and you know what? It softened Judah. Judah has grown. He's matured, and uh, no doubt, Judah, I mean, he's probably asked the Lord 
a thousand times if he's asked them once, please forgive me for how foolishly I've acted in the past. And Judah displays uh, that growth and change hereby saying, let the fault be on me forever if I don't bring back your son. 22 years earlier, Judah begrudged the fact that Joseph was uh, his dad's favorite. Now, Jacob is not hiding the fact that Benjamin is his favorite son, and Judah's not threatened by it at all. I mean, there's been some real change here. His concern, Judah's concern now is for what's best for the family, and he's also very compassionate in regards to what his father is going through at this time. A lot has changed in Judah's life. In verse 10, for if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. Judah says, Dad, I mean, you know what? If we hadn't been standing around here arguing, we could have, we could have uh, been down there and back by now. And in verse 11, it says, And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruit of the land in your vessel and carry them down, uh, carry them down, and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and all, almonds. Now, you know, what's really important, I think, in this verse is to notice that Jacob is called Israel here, governed by God. It seems like throughout Jacob's life, as you study him, it seems like there are times that he reverts to his old ways when he's pressed, right? When you study Jacob's life, it seems like this new name governed by God, like Israel, like it doesn't always fit him. There's a struggle that Jacob goes through throughout his life, going back and forth between conniving and scheming and manipulating and, and being governed by God. You know, and honestly, as you know, I was preparing for this study, you know, I mean, it, it actually kind of broke my heart to see this, you know, because, uh, you know, I see that struggle in my life, honestly. I just see it in my life. I hate the old nature. I hate the old Garrett, you know? He always seems to get revived when, I, when I'm pressed, when I'm in a difficult situation. I want to be governed by God. You know, I thank God, you know, if we stop right there, you know, it's just so very discouraging. But the reality is, and I thank God that, that the, the Spirit is working in my life. He's doing a work in me. He's doing a work in each one of us. He's at work conforming us into the image of Christ. And uh, it's the process of sanctification. You know, it's that ongoing work within our heart that is achieving an eternal uh, work, an eternal good thing in each one of us. I love what 1 Corinthians 6.11 says. Because it says, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God. You know what? It's a past tense description of who we are. It's a past tense description of what God is currently working in each one of our lives. You know, it's how God sees us in Christ Jesus, washed, sanctified, and justified, and you know what? I just love it. God is in, at work in me. He's at work in you. And it's just such a beautiful thing. I'm not to look at myself the way I see myself. I'm to trust God to do a work in me uh, that he has promised. That he has promised while I'm running the race that's set before me. And this is what Paul said again in First Philippians 3. 12 and 14, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call 
of God in Christ Jesus. You know, we forget past failures. That's what it's talking about. But you know what? We're to forget past victories too. You know what? We need to be running the race today. We need to be pressing in today, running the race today and running that race to win. You know, the, when it says pressing uh, forward towards that goal, the picture in the Greek is of a sprinter. He's in that race. And you know what he's doing is there's the tape. There's the finish line. And what is he doing? He's just stretching forward, just trying so hard to get to the end. That's the way it is, man. Just get to the end. Get there. Whatever it takes, you know, run the race and run it to win. Well, some people very definitely see Jacob here reverting to his old ways. Now, I'm not 100% sure if that's true or not. Honestly, I can go either way. However, I'm inclined, at least today, not to think that that's what he's doing, providing this gift for, um, for the man, right? It seems to me that that's not what's going on. Again, because the Holy Spirit refers to Jacob in Scripture uh, as Israel here. And when the Holy Spirit refers to Jacob as Israel, I think it's a clue to us, right, that he's being led by God. I think it's the Holy Spirit trying to give us, you know, a heads up as to when Jacob is, uh, is spiritually uh, being led by God at any given time. And again, when he uses the name Jacob, well, then it's, a, it's an indication that he's kind of in the flesh, right? But bringing a gift to a, a governmental official at this time, it was the customary thing to do, right? To gain an audience with a governmental official, a high-ranking official. That's what you did. Not bringing a gift was considered an insult. And, and you know, um, I don't know how, just being real here too, you know what? It's one of the things that Tina and I, we, we wrestle with, you know? We haven't figured out uh, what it's like now since we've returned to the States. Like somebody invites us to their house, are we supposed to bring a gift? I mean, is that the customary thing? In Europe, yeah, that's the customary thing you do. Somebody invites to your house, you bring a gift. And it's just being polite. It's just the custom. I'm not really sure here. So if you invited us to your house and we came without a gift, would you forgive us? We, you, guys would, you guys would break us. You know? We're over there so much, you know. But, you know, yeah, it's just so, it's just customary. And in verse 12, right? Jacob says, take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. So Jacob tells Judah, he says, take back three times the money that you took last time. You know, also take some raisins, some dried figs, some nuts and give them as a gift to the man. Maybe it's just all one big misunderstanding. But it wasn't an oversight. Again, Jacob, uh, sorry, Joseph, he's sharp. He has no idea what his family's financial situation is, right? He doesn't want the reason for them not returning to him to be because they can't afford to come and buy grain. They don't have money to buy grain. So he makes sure that he has that money. He restores that money to them. So they have the funds to come back when their supplies run out to buy grain. I mean, like I said, Joseph, he's thinking, man, he's sharp. And verse 13 says, take your brother also, take Benjamin also and rise and go back to the man and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. And if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And I think here we see Jacob, I mean, I think he's breaking. This is hard for him. He's breaking. And what he says, though, he says, may God Almighty give you mercy. What he says is, may El Shaddai, God Almighty, give you mercy. El Shaddai means the sufficient one. Also could be translated the abundant one, you know. And, and we got to remember, this is the guy. Jacob is the guy we read about in Hebrews chapter 11 in that hall of faith, right? Jacob is commending his son into the hands of an all-powerful, merciful God, 
trusting that his power and his mercy would be greater than the unreasonableness of this Egyptian ruler. In verse 15, so the men took that uh, present and Benjamin and they took double money in their hand and rose and went uh, down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. Joseph, uh, sorry, Jacob, he's back in the land of Canaan. He's back in the promised land now, all alone. He's all alone again. You know, it's just interesting, you know, when you see Jacob all alone. And I'm sure Jacob is on his face before the Lord. I mean, what would you be doing? Your little, your, your little baby, okay, he's not a little baby, but you know what? I'm 62 years old. I'm my mom's little baby. You know, I'm a doctor. I'm a pastor. You know, I've, I've been to the top of two other careers. And, and you know what? I'm her little baby. She's, I know my mom's watching, so I'm not going to say any more. <laughs> but I'm sure he's on his face before the Lord. I mean, he's wrestling once again with the Lord right here. In his heart. When it says in verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with him, right? Just imagine, Joseph hasn't seen his brother since he was one or two years old. You know, it makes me think of, of our grandsons. You know, our, our oldest grandson, Noah, he's three years old now, and he is in, so in love with his little brother. Uh, His name's Florian. It's a popular German name. And, uh, you know, Flo for short. But he's so in love with Flo, who's almost four. I mean, he can't keep his hands off Flo. He's always hugging him. He's always kissing him. He's always telling Flo that Jesus loves him. I mean, he, he just loves Flo so much. And it's so beautiful to see. Noah's always saying that his little brother is his best friend. It just cracks me up. In fact, our daughter uh, was telling us today uh, where she was talking to Noah and just, what, what was it? She, she's asking Noah if uh, she's his best friend. He says, no, Flo, you know. <laughs> Do you love me? No, I love Flo. <laughs> you know, just kind of funny. Well, when Joseph, you know, he has this love so deep for his brother. When Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Joseph's heart, his heart must be beating out of his chest right now. His brothers are back and Benjamin is with them. Verse 17, then the man, then the man did as Joseph uh, ordered. This is the steward. Um, Then the man did as Joseph ordered and uh, the man brought the men into Jacob's house. And it's, yeah, Joseph's house. You know what I mean. You know what? It's, it's interesting to me because these guys, they're brothers, right? Their reaction isn't, cool, 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 man. Here we are. This is great. Their reaction is one of fear. And I don't know, you know, if you're like this or not. This is the way I am when I get in a situation that's kind of iffy. You know what? I want to find a seat in the back of the class. You know, I'm not looking forward to being up front. You know, uh, I want to be invisible. When I go to a uh, conference or something like that, you know, I'm looking to be invisible. I'm looking to find a seat in the back. I don't want anybody talking to me. You know, I'm not looking to be noticed. You know, it's just the way I way I am. I'm just not comfortable in those situations and. And I think that's how these, these brothers are probably thinking, you know. Um, given the history with this man, you know, they're probably thinking this can't be a very good thing for us. We're in trouble, right? In verse 18, now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. I mean, it just cracks me up. I mean, these brothers think that the second most powerful man in the world is after their donkeys. (laughs) It just cracks me up. He's after, he's going to take us as slaves so he can get our donkeys, you know? But that's the guilt these guys are dealing with, right? It's still at work. 
and they're not thinking straight because of the guilt. They think they deserve some sort of punishment for what they've done, and it makes them unable to see the blessing. You know, Shakespeare said that suspicion haunts a guilty mind. You know, when you're guilty, everything looks suspicious. Everything people do looks suspicious because that's where you live. You know, perception, people say perception is reality. And, and you know, I'm sure that that's the case sometimes. But even if you perceive things wrong, it can seem real to you because that's your perception. That's where you're at. And we should remember also that these guys are shepherds, right? Joseph's brother, they are kind of a rough and tough bunch of guys. It's true, but they're also farm people at the same time. And if you're a farmer, you know, no disrespect, but, uh, you know, just imagine what Joseph's house looked like being the second most powerful man in the world. Marble columns, servants just standing at attention, waiting for Joseph to give them an order. Fish ponds, maybe. Who knows? I mean, just try to imagine opulence that is just off the charts. And uh, Joseph's brothers, they're probably feeling very, very much out of place here if not also intimidated by Joseph's wealth. And the whole scene is summed up by saying they're afraid. They're probably thinking, you know what, we're here for lunch, but we're the lunch here. You know, they're in trouble. In verse 19, when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him, uh, at the door of the house. The steward's probably the one that Joseph has been used as, has been using as an interpreter. And they said, oh, sir, we, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. I mean, Joseph's brother, they, they just start pleading their case here. Oh, sir, we indeed came down to the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there, each man's money was in the mouth of the sack, our money in full weight. So we brought it back in our hand. And what these guys are saying, they're saying, hey, you know, we just want you to know we're not thieves, right? We're not bad guys, right? We brought the money back. In verse 32 or 22, and when he brought down, and when we had brought down other money in our hands to buy food, uh, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. The steward understands Hebrew. And so they're pleading their innocence with him. They're saying, you know, we don't know why Zaphnath Paniah brought us here. Right? We don't, we have money to buy more grain. We have money. And we brought back the money that, that we found in our sacks. I mean, you got to believe us. We're not bad guys. It's just one big misunderstanding right? We were just surprised when it happened to us when we found out as you probably were when you guys found out. You know, when all this gets straightened out, we're all going to have a big laugh over this. We're not bad guys. I can hear their voice cracking. <laughs> we're, we're not bad guys. You understand, right? Uh, would you mind just passing on our explanation to the man, you know? And it says, verse 23, the steward, but he said, peace. He says to Joseph's brothers, shalom. Can you imagine what that must have sounded like in their ears when they heard that? And that's what it says in the Hebrew text. He's speaking Hebrew to them. He says, shalom, right? I, I imagine that it, it was probably to some degree, some relief for them to hear that peace. Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sack. I had your money. I mean, just listen to it again. Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Listen, guys, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sack. I had your money. You know, it's like this Egyptian is witnessing to them in regard to their lack of faith, saying, trust 
your God and the God of your fathers. You know, your God has given you treasure in your sack. He says, I had, your, I had the money you used to buy the grain. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And Simeon looks at these guys and he probably says, where the heck you guys been? <laughs> you know what? Did you guys get lost along the way or what? And the reality was actually, I mean, I'm kidding around, of course. The reality was probably that Simeon was very happy to see his brothers again because he knew exactly what his brothers knew. Dad is never going to let Benjamin come down here. You know, however, starvation is a pretty strong motivator when it comes to making certain decisions. So Simeon, he's probably relieved. He's probably excited. He's overjoyed to see them, not to mention very thankful that Jacob allowed them to come back and to bring Benjamin. Verse 24, so the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. They washed their feet, good Middle Eastern hospitality, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present, which was in their hand into the house, notice this, and bowed down before him to the earth. They fall down on the ground before Joseph in this just display of submission and in reverence. And you know what? It's a fuller fulfillment of Joseph's dream, right? And all now, all the brothers are bowing down before him with their faces to the ground like he had seen, like Joseph had seen in his dream, right? They're going to bow down a few more times before we get to the end of uh, the whole thing, before everything's over. God said, and this is the, the point, God said to Joseph that he would be raised up to a position of preeminence in the family and that his brothers would bow down to him. And it's happened now just as God has said. And again, I've said it every Bible study almost since we started uh, the life of Joseph. God's promises to you, his promises to me, the dreams that he's given us, they're going to come to pass. Don't be impatient. You know, it may take a year. It may take five years or 10 years. In Joseph's case, it's taken more than 20 years. You know what? It's going to come to pass. God is faithful. And we can throw ourselves on his faithfulness and just trust in him. Verse 27, then he asked them about their well-being and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? Now, Jacob, uh, sorry, Joseph, he's running a risk here and he knows it, right? Uh, he knows that his father is elderly and he's running the risk that Jacob may die while he's testing his brothers to see if they've changed or not, right? Joseph is probably thinking at the same time, it must have just killed dad to send Benjamin down here with these guys. So this is a you know, forefront in, in um, Joseph's mind. Is, is dad still alive? How's he doing? And uh, verse 28, and they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. He's still alive. And and at this point, Joseph must have just taken just a deep breath, just, just a sigh of relief. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. And he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. Joseph is playing it really cool here. He said, is this your younger brother of, of uh, whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. I mean, imagine this if you can. Joseph hasn't spoken to Benjamin for over 20 years. It may have been as much as 23 years since he's last seen uh, Benjamin. Just think of the emotion, the emotion when he sees his mother's son, his full brother. I mean, Sometimes I think these things escape us because in our culture, family isn't as important, 
you know, but boy, I mean, you just got to think that the most important people in your life is family. Nothing else really matters. And now Joseph sees his brother who he hasn't seen again in 20, 23 years. Must have been just overwhelming. And, and it tells us in verse 30 how overwhelming it is. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. I mean, this is such a beautiful verse to me. I think we all should have this, this verse underlined in our Bibles. God takes note of it when we enter into our chambers and weep there. Our Father who sees in secret, our Father who hears our cries, the very one who puts our tears in a bottle, He sees you when you're overwhelmed with emotion and, and you're forced to retreat to a chamber to weep. God takes notice. Sometimes we can feel like we're crying all alone, that God doesn't really care when our hearts are just overwhelmed, when our hearts are broken. But the Bible tells us something completely different. God takes note and he records every tear. Every single tear uh, God takes note of. And I'm so happy for that. I'm so thankful for that. You know what? Before I was a Christian, I never cried. I cry every day to, nowadays. I do just, I'm reading the Bible in the morning, just my devotion time. Just, God, you're so good. You're so faithful. You've taken such a loser like Gary Barrow and you've made him your son. That's overwhelming to me. This is the second of six times we see Joseph weeping. It's, it says here that Joseph retreats uh, to his chamber to weep. And he must be thinking, Benjamin is here. Dad is still alive. God, you're so faithful, so very gracious. In verse 31, it says he washed his face, probably because the mascara that the Egyptians wear around their eyes is all rough. You know, you ladies know what a what that may be like, I don't know. You know, you ever in the situation where you've cried, you don't want anybody to know it, you know, so you go into the bathroom, you splash some water on your face, you come out, your skin's all blotchy and your eyes are all red. What happened to you? Man, you got some really hard water here, let me tell you. you know, I was okay before I went into the bathroom. Anyway, then he washed his face and came out and he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. Joseph had to restrain himself no doubt he wants to reveal himself to his brothers here. No doubt he wanted to embrace them. So why doesn't he reveal himself right now? Why doesn't he do that? Well, I think it's because through Joseph's trials in life, he's learned patience. He's learned to wait on the Lord. 13 years of being in a dungeon, in a prison, has a way of teaching you to be patient, I imagine, you know? Uh, as much as he wanted to, even like you and I, you know, so often we want to get out in front of the Lord. We, we're in a hurry to get out there. Let's get to the end of the thing. But Joseph knew he needed to be patient and wait on the Lord. It, it wasn't the right time yet. It still wasn't the right time, right? He knew that he, that he, he had to wait so that he could see if indeed his brother's heart's have been changed. You know, if this hatred and jealousy that they had for him, he had to see, is it now directed uh, towards Benjamin, his youngest brother, right? Uh, you know, so even though he wanted to make himself known, he patiently restrains himself, you know, and this sets the stage for this final test that Joseph is going to bring into his life into their lives in chapter 44. Um, you know, I know it's no surprise to any of you that we're not going to get to that chapter tonight. Uh, you know, tonight can be a little bit shorter of a Bible study, maybe instead of a longer Bible study. But uh, this sets the stage for the final test. Was that strife, that jealousy still in their hearts? Now it's directed at Benjamin? Or has God done a work in their lives? Has God changed their hearts? And that's what Genesis 44 is all about. Verse 32 says, And they set him 
and they set him a place by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for it was an abomination to the Egyptians. Well, I guess the Egyptians wouldn't last very long in our culture today, right? This council, cancel culture. Anyway, you know, the Egyptians at this point, though, they are so far beyond the nomadic people. And that's who the, the Hebrews were at this time. You know, basically, they're somewhat nomadic. And, and what I mean there when I say beyond, I'm speaking in terms of sophistication and abilities, right? They, they did things back then, the Egyptians, that, that uh, even today we don't understand. Right? How'd they build the pyramids? I mean, that's a mystery. Uh, you know, how did they get light down in those tunnels when there's no carbon deposits from a candle or a torch in those tunnels deep within the pyramid? Right? They've tried to reproduce and put light in those tunnels using mirrors. Didn't work. Didn't work. How'd they do it? They've found, and you can see them in museums in Cairo, they found these little clay pots with rods in them. They're carbon pots, I guess, with rods in them. And people think that they use them as batteries for lighting somehow. You know? I, I've heard in Cairo they have this cat. It's carved out of cobalt. It was carved out of meteor uh, that's pure cobalt. You know, something cobalt is something that I, I understand. I don't know. I'm not a metallurgist. I don't deal with metals, whatever that person's name is. Um, metallurgist? Is that pretty close? All right. I just pulled that one out. You know? <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, I don't know. But my understanding is we can hardly cut cobalt today. And there's this cat that they've carved with just these really fine, intricate details within the cobalt. You know, they found this granite, uh, piece of granite from the Sinai Peninsula that it's so smooth. It's cut so smooth. The only way we could get that smooth of a cut on a stone today is with a, with a laser, right? No one knows how they did it. In the, in the pyramid, and I look this up. If you see a diagram, look in a diagram. There's this, this one area of the pyramid inside the Great Pyramid in Giza called the, the Great Hall. And uh, you know what? It's 275 feet long, and it runs downward. Uh, 275 feet one into the other, it runs downward. And uh, from one into the other, it's only off by a quarter of an inch, something that would be very difficult for us to achieve today, right? The Great Pyramid at Giza, the base is 13 acres. It's the largest building ever constructed. 200 some million stones used, the cornerstones set in sockets. The side of the Great Pyramid is more true north than the Paris Observatory. And the space between the stones, this was something I thought, I find, found it interesting. Maybe I'm dating myself too, but the space between the stones are tighter than the heat tiles on the space shuttle. That's how tight those they got those. How'd they do it? They were very sophisticated, very advanced, and they considered it beneath them to eat with the Hebrews, right? They were hicks compared to the Egyptians, and they considered eating with them disgusting. That's what an abomination means. It's kind of funny, right? And Joseph, he, during this, he keeps this charade going, keeps this whole charade going where he's not going to eat with his brothers. And of course, um, it doesn't surprise his brothers. You know, Joseph being a man in, at his station in life, you know, he would uh, be, not be eating with any of them, the Egyptians. You know, they wouldn't eat with Joseph, but it's disgusting. It's an abomination for them to eat with the brothers. So the brothers, they're at the kids' table. That's where they're at, right? And, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise them. But what surprises the brothers is verse 33. It says, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. They sit the brothers in order of their birth. Reuben, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin. And honestly, think about it. 
what Joseph is doing. I bet you there was an empty chair. You know what? I bet you there was an empty chair. We're not told there's an empty chair, but I bet you there was an empty chair where Joseph was supposed to be. Right? The odds of randomly getting 10 of the brothers in order, just setting them down in order, the odds of that occurring are one chance in 3,628,800. That's a lot. Stick in an extra chair at the right spot, that empty seat for Joseph in the right spot, the odds are 39,916,800 to 1 to get all 11 in the right order. You know what? It says the men looked in astonishment at one another. Well, I guess so. <laughs> I love how the Bible downplays things, you know? This understatement. Yeah, heck yeah, man. They were astonished. They were probably speechless. And Joseph, he's going to play on this seemingly divine power in the next chapter as Joseph takes this cup that he has and he puts it in Benjamin's sack. Joseph is going to play this power up as he turns up the heat on his brothers. But yeah, you can bet that they were freaked out at this point. And verse 34 says, Then he took servings to them from before them, uh, before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as the others. Each one of the brothers, they get a large plate, but Benjamin, his plate is five times bigger than everybody else. Now, it, it is symbolic, okay? We know from history that the Spartans, they would give it a dignitary or a royalty. They would honor him by twice as much as everybody else. The Cretans, they would give uh, four times as much. But the Egyptians, you know, they would give a royalty or a dignitary five times as much. And you just see that. The brothers, you just imagine them seeing this. They're probably thinking, wait a minute. I mean, dad clearly loves Benjamin more than the rest of us. Now we come down here and he gets five times as much. I mean, what's up with that? And Joseph, he's doing all of this on purpose. He wants to see if his brothers are jealous of Benjamin. He's trying to provoke them to jealousy, to see if they hate him the way uh, they hated Joseph to see if they hate Benjamin because he's favored. Because they hated Joseph with a murderous hatred because he was favored by their dad. So Joseph is trying to show them this undeniable, over-the-top favoritism for Benjamin to see how they'll, they will respond. And I'm sure he gave them all a great meal. I mean, it's probably a fabulous meal. But just Benjamin received five times as much. And to Joseph's surprise, I'm sure, there's no hint of jealousy towards the favoritism that's showed to Benjamin. Joseph's brothers, they're changed men by this time. So they drank and they were merry with him. Not a lot of details here. Literally, it says that they drank well. And being in Egypt, what that means is they were drinking beer. They're not drinking wine. You know, warm beer. I'm not a beer drinker, but it sounds kind of nasty to me anyway. Uh, but here, these 11 brothers, they're drinking, they're laughing, they're talking with Joseph. We have no record of the conversation, but you can just imagine what it must have been like. I mean, the relief on these brothers, you know, after this meal, like, whoa, even though Joseph is still keeping his identity a secret. So like I said previously, Joseph has another really big test for his brothers in the next chapter, but we'll leave that for next week. We want to continue with the remaining minutes to uh, look at the picture of Jesus in this chapter, right? We'll pick up and we'll read from verse 15. It says, So the men took the present and, and Benjamin, and they took double money in their sack and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men uh, will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered and the man brought the brothers to, into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time 
that we are brought in so that he may uh, make a case against us and seize us and take our slaves with our donkeys. When they drew near this, to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks. And there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand. And we've brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. But he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. And I just want to point out, I've said it before, but it's always worth pointing out. This is the most often quoted phrase of Jesus in the New Testament, right? This is what Jesus said more than any other thing recorded. Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. That's what the Lord speaks to his people. Do not be afraid. He says, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Where did the money come from that the servant had, right? When they purchased the grain initially, they put the money back in the sacks of the brothers. Where did the money that the servant have come from to pay for the grain? Joseph paid the price for them, right? Joseph paid for their grain of life. Joseph paid the price for them, making for them provision that would give them life. And again, what an incredible picture we see here of Jesus, right? One greater than Joseph. Joseph, he, he isn't just giving them grain at no cost. Somebody has to pay for it. So he paid the price for them, right? The steward got the money so that all things would be above reproach, right? So nothing would be uh, illegitimate. But it was Joseph that paid for it instead of requiring it from those he loved. Joseph paid the price personally and willingly because he loved them. Jesus is the one who personally paid for our salvation, right? He did it willingly because of his love for us. And it's through his sacrifice, through his provision for us that we are able to partake of Jesus, the bread of life, the one who sustains life. In verse 24, so the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave them donkeys, gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that they would eat bread um, there. Uh, and when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed before uh, him to the earth. And they and he asked them about their well-being. Again, just what a picture of our Savior. What a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of his concern for us. How are you doing? How are you doing today? You know, the Lord is concerned for you. You know, you, even if you're running from him, he's concerned for you. Right? Even if you're denying him, rejecting him, he's concerned for you. How are you doing? Jesus cares for each one of us. He loves us. And Joseph said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? Verse 28. And they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. And he lifted his eyes and he saw his other brother, Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brothers. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into a chamber and wept there again. A picture of Jesus weeping over his brethren, right? Luke 19, 41 tells us as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, he weeps over the city because they fail to recognize him as their Messiah. And we read in verse 30 here in uh Genesis 43, we read in verse 30 that Joseph's heart yearned for his brothers. More literally, the Hebrew says uh, that his bowels yearned for his brothers. It, 
could be also translated that he had compassion for his brothers. Again, it's a picture of Jesus. More than any other phrase spoken of Jesus is that he was moved with compassion. Right? The Hebrew and the Greek words, uh, they're different, of course, but the Greek New Testament word for compassion means to be moved within your bowels. Um, it's a description of the heart of a person, the place of deep emotion, right? The center of a person's being. You know, it's this unmistakable foreshadowing of Jesus, the Messiah, who is written of frequently in the New Testament that he was he was moved in his heart, that he was moved in his bowels for the well-being of people. He was moved and he fed them. He was moved with compassion and he taught them. He was moved with compassion and he healed them over and over again. We read about it in the New Testament. Again, just another picture here of our Savior as we read of Joseph's heart yearning for his brothers. Well, that's where we're going to leave it tonight for uh, chapter 43. You know, wherever you may be with the Lord tonight, you know, you need to know that he loves you. And, and again, just as we started, we just sang that song, just the Lord speaking to my heart, Gary, take a minute and let's just think about his love for us. He's compassionate towards you. He's compassionate towards me. It's something that I value so much, his love. It, it, it truly is amazing. So many people think that God is angry with them. You know, so many people think, you know, God's angry with them because they failed in this area or they, you know, didn't, you know, stand strong in that area. You know, they've sinned and now God's done with them. And it's not true. He looks at each one of us with tremendous love. He's moved with compassion when he looks at each one of us, when he looks at you. You know, if you're a believer tonight and you're struggling with, it, with your walk, you know, whatever the situation may be, you're just struggling. Maybe where's God in this? Or, you know, gosh, I'm such a knucklehead. I just keep doing that same thing over and over again. When is the cycle going to break? God must be so tired of me. You know what? You need to know that he's here for you. You turn to him. You run to him. You know, if you're a believer, you just run to the Lord and throw yourself on his compassion and his love for you. It's so great. If you're not a believer and you're here, if you're not a believer, you're watching online. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, never asked him to forgive you of your sins, you know, you need to understand the Bible says the wrath of God abides upon you right now, right? But it only abides on you as long as you reject him, as long as you reject his free gift of salvation, his substitutionary atonement. Jesus loves you and he died for you. He took your sins and gave you his righteousness. I mean, that's a trait of a century, right? He did that so that you might receive forgiveness, that he took your sins, died on the cross, shed his blood, that you might be forgiven. And you can come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ if you'll confess your sins, if you'll tell him that you're sorry for your wrongdoing, you know? But you need to be sincere. If you're not sincere, if it's, it's just words then, it's meaningless, you know what? The Lord's looking for a deep, meaningful relationship with each one of us. If you're sincere and you ask him to forgive you of your sins, you know, the Bible promises that he'll blot out your sins, right? Those sins that separate you from him, separate you from his love, and he'll make you his child. I mean, he knows your heart. I remember before I was a Christian, you know what? I was a sinner. It's true. I am a sinner. I mess up all the time. But you know what? I never wanted to be. I wanted to be a good person. God knows your heart, right? And he promises if you'll turn to him, he'll make you his child, right? There's no formula, no magic words, but it does take sincerity. You need to break over your sins. You need to be sorry for your wrongs. Ask him for forgiveness and he'll perform a miracle in your life. He will trans, he'll 
take you from a, a kingdom of darkness, the Bible says, and translate you into a kingdom of love in His Son, Jesus Christ. You know what? Again, your sins for His righteousness. That's a good trade. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word, Lord. Again, just want to focus on your love. Just thank you for your love. Thank you for your concern. Thank you for your compassion. But I just pray you would just wash over us with your word. and Lord, just allow your word to purify us and, and just sink deep into our heart, take root and bear fruit, Lord. I just pray for any brother or sister that, that's hearing my voice now that's struggling, Lord. Pray, give them the courage to turn to you. Help them understand you see everything. Nothing's hidden from you. Everything's open and naked in your sight. Lord, they're not hiding anything, Lord. I just pray that you give them the courage to turn to you, receive forgiveness, receive restoration. Lord, for people that maybe don't know you, that are broken over their sin, that are hurting, that don't want to be sinners, they want to be right in your eyes, Lord. I just pray that you give them the courage to pray from their heart, to ask you to forgive them, and that by faith that they could receive your forgiveness, Lord. Father, we give you praise. We, we love you. We thank you for all your goodness, all your great grace, all your faithfulness to us, Lord. Even when we're faithless, we give you praise, Jesus, in your name. Amen.